so do you want to hear about either um, Joe Biden not doing anything or my experience watching Beetlejuice? Mm, uh, let's go with Beetlejuice because I, I think figured. everyone knows that Joe Biden's not doing anything. Hmm. I don't know if they all know. A lot of football <laughs> going on. Um, so I just have to, right out of the bat, um, right out of the gate. Uh, right what off is the top. It, what is it with your generation and uh, making everybody in movies a sexual predator? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've thought about this um, because of like all the movies that were out in like the late 80s and 90s. Not just like the comedies and stuff, but just generally like the way all movies were and i wonder if someone's going to do like a big think piece maybe in 20 years going back and looking at like man the reason why we had so much like cultural change about awareness of sexual predation and uh, assault and harassment and all of those things is because us millennials were the ones going through this weird growing pain stage where it was a bunch of boomers who were the uh, producers and writers of all these films and television shows and they showed us all these great examples of terrible behavior <laughs> and then and we were mortified when we saw it as kids and we just did not internalize it like the previous generations did and so that was the thing that forced change to happen so maybe we should wear it as a badge of honor is what i'm saying okay that makes that makes it sound a little bit better. It was so weird, though, because, I mean, I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid, and Miho's never seen it, so we were like, all right, we don't... We saw enough horror movies, um, and we're like, all right, let's just have a an easy one during the day. And he's... It's not even, like, jokes or anything. He's, like, just... I'm going to marry a high schooler and uh, I'm going to be looking under everyone's dress. It's so weird. Uh, and we were watching it and Miho was like, what is going on? And I said, uh, you know, it was the 80s. And she uh, aptly pointed out, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, you can, these critiques go all the way back to like, uh, like even the original like Disney cartoons and like if you go back and watch old movie musicals from like the 40s, 30s, 40s and 50s, you know, like it was a common trope of like some 40 year old man trying to marry a 14 year old girl. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they it's so weird, too, because I think uh, Beetlejuice at one point gets um, essentially the people like the ghosts that are gonna hire him uh he's you know gets blue balled because they're not gonna hire him so then mm -hmm. he's uh you know goes and visits a uh brothel <laughs> that right. appears and it's <laughs> like well, what you ever been so pent up you just need to release <laughs> it's such a weird movie uh probably doesn't hold up either with i wouldn't say full-on racist but it is a little it 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 skirts the lines yeah you, there there's like uh some uh you know 
white people uh, gentrifying the neighborhood type of <laughs> uh, real estate politics going on in there. A lot of real estate politics <laughs> going on in that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one. But um, but he, I guess so he was... is like a ghost from hell, so he's supposed to be constantly on the worst behavior. That's kind of his, you know, M.O. So he's... yeah. While he is somewhat like the anti-hero of the movie, he is also like, ah, oh, he's just that dirty uncle that you just still have to invite to Christmas or whatever. <laughs> sure. Did you know, though, um, we were watching it uh, and we had like subtitles on at certain parts and his name is not J-U-I-C-E, Juice. Oh, what is it? It's G E U S E, and oh. it's like B B E T E L. So they're just spelling it like the star. Yeah, that's what we we looked it up, and uh, yeah, the star Beetlejuice, which it's like Betel Goose, like different pronunciations and stuff. But um, so that was kind of weird. But it's also a star that's been known, like it's been talked about since like Ptolemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cuz it's so that's huge. Weird. It's like one of the biggest stars that we first ever saw. <laughs> it's yeah, a massive it's, star. It, it's like, like I the think shoulder of Orion, right? Yeah, and I think um like if you put Betelgeuse at the center of our solar system, I think it would extend out the size of the star would extend out to like Saturn's orbit or something like that. Oh, it's, that's insane. It's huge. It's, it's way bigger than our sun. Okay. Yeah, then and it's it's like kind of orangish too, right? Yeah. So that was that was a quick hit. That was fun. Space. See, you learn something new every time. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything. Like kids with decoders discover the wonder in the And still, that's not even though it was like the lar- thought to be like the largest star for a long time that we could see and measure with telescopes and stuff. They found ones that are even larger than that now that make Betelgeuse look like a tiny star in comparison. <laughs> so yeah, and, and then make like our sun look like the size of the planet Mercury to those stars. <laughs> so it's it's just you know scales in uh, in space. Get they get out of whack really fast when you start to think about it. <laughs> Speaking of space, too, I know we're probably going to do an episode on this one, but uh, I heard the controversy controversy with the uh, James Webb naming of the telescope. Oh, you did? I I did not hear this. What was what was the controversy? Controversy. Uh, recent recent documents reveal that he was like approving of firing gay and lesbian um, employees from NASA. Oh, okay. <laughs> like directing it. So, <laughs> I, I saw the story and immediately thought, man, Josh is going to be so disappointed. Well, I, 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 I'm 
jazzed about the telescope, don't really care too much about the namesake. <laughs> but are, isn't this your thing? Like, just don't name anything after anybody? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason. <laughs> there's no reason to. And, you know, science has this, uh, there is this, uh, maybe we should do a episode about this sometime, just sort of the undergirding of the culture war that is inside of academia not like college academia but actual science because like uh there were a lot of scientists you know that went to little saint james with jeffrey epstein oh yeah like uh particle physicists and fucking stephen uh, hawking right stephen hawking uh lawrence krauss you know like that guy's weird though so some of the some of the big names in like cosmology like some of the biggest brains on the planet, like one of one type people that could figure some stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so like there is always going to be like, oh, yeah, people in power, rich people, celebrities or whatever, you know, they think they can get away with anything. But we need to hold them to the same standard as everyone else because it's just coincidence or fortune, good fortune or being in the right place at the right time that made them rich or famous. They're no different than another person. But then there's always this like, but, but what about these really smart people? Like, can anyone replace what they're doing? We can't cancel them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're, uh, like if we get rid of, if we tell Stephen Hawking, he can't do science anymore, then who's going to figure all this stuff out? (laughs) I mean, Lawrence Krauss, isn't he sort of uh, a dark web kind of guy? Like the, um, like, sort of skull shapes and stuff, fringe? I don't know if he was into that. I know that he was one of the one of the big guys on figuring out, like, the closest to the moment of the Big Bang. Like, working back in time to get to the closest that you can to the Big Bang. And he made a lot of discoveries in relation to that. Um, but then he got, you know, me too by a bunch of his uh, graduate students at the University of Arizona, I think, um, who, you know, said that he made a lot of unwanted advances and made it seem like uh, their grades were dependent upon him, you know, getting reciprocated sex and stuff like that. So not a great guy. Not a great guy at all. Um, yeah. And, uh, but so that, that's like the, que- the, the ultimate question science, there are, there is like a wing of science where it's like, but these, these men or these, these individuals, they're like one of one brains in, in the generation. So can we be so harsh on them? And you know, the retort is, well, there's like seven and a half billion people on the planet. I don't know if they're actually one of one with their level of intelligence or whatever. They just might've had like the access to the education or access to the mentorship from other professors and things that put them in line to be able to be thinking about the things that they were thinking about type of deal. At that level too, I can guarantee they're also suppressing rising talent. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's probably there. And you know, if you have, uh, if you, were a young scientist who had a big breakthrough that challenged the status quo and then finally over time like all of the scientific field shifted to your theory as being the underlying theory of everything and now you're the old guy you're going to like defend that against any new blood coming in and saying what if we uh what if we thought about it a different way yeah yeah 
So no, they're uh, I've not met anybody at that scale, but uh, I can guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even just you know college professors like at at Baylor University, um, not really not really interested in having conversations with people because they've got their important research on. Uh, pretty much nothing. There's no research coming out of Baylor other than <laughs> well, there's uh, a bunch of like a uh, bunch of young Earth science coming out. I think. Oh yeah, good, good. Yeah, <laughs> proving proving when the flood happened. Mm-hmm. They're staring at a rock, waiting for it to turn into a turtle. <laughs> yeah. Like, see, yeah. evolution doesn't exist. Where, where's where's all the in between monkey and humans? Where's all the in between stages? I don't see any of those walking around. Oh, speaking of, I was watching as I'm looking through like the eons videos for dinosaurs. Um, I saw the one where it was talking about humans and other hominins. Uh, I, I thought that there were way more than just two other groups of hominids that we knew about. Like, and the, uh, so the Neanderthals known about for years, Mm -hmm. but the Denisovans are only known like they're not even given like a official title because there's been no big fossils found of them just like some teeth oh what about like the uh the pygmy type people i don't know what their uh official name is for the really tiny people mm. that they found uh fossils and skeletons of that were like isolated on little islands and they evolved in a cer- certain way. Everyone called them pygmies, but I can't remember what the actual scientific name for them is. Yeah, I can't. I I don't recall either. But I don't think it was a different species. Maybe it was. I'm not sure. But the, I mean, the Neanderthal stuff too is so interesting because it it really starts to question the species aspect of things because you had interbreeding between humans and right, Neanderthals right. and Denisovans and stuff. And you can trace it back to where the common ancestor was between all three of those was like a million years ago. And changes in their DNA, at least as far as the Neanderthals are concerned, occurred, you know, uh, 400,000 years ago or whatever. And then that DNA is in our body. Like apparently, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it has a tie-in with today too the human uh immune response to a viral infection i think it's is it step two or step two or something some protein is directly like they know that came from neanderthals so Ah, so we wouldn't be able to fight off coronavirus if we didn't mate with the neanderthals yeah yeah so it's kind of you know it's interesting stuff especially as we think about dinosaurs and the adaptations that they went through, knowing that that stuff happens in humans, um, is it's wild, mm-hmm. wild history. What a wonderful history! Yeah. Well, so we're gonna finish our three parts on dinosaurs now. Um, talking about all the adaptations, we're in the Cretaceous period now. We did Triassic and Jurassic, and the Cretaceous is really like the this is the thriving time. This is when the dinosaurs really rule the earth. The land masses are such that you get a lot of diversification, 
a lot of adaptations, way more dinosaurs, different types of dinosaurs, different variations of dinosaurs happened during this period than the previous periods we talked about. This is like the explosion of all the types of dinosaurs that we all have come to know and love. That's why it should have been called Cretaceous Park instead of Jurassic Park, but I guess it just doesn't have the same ring to it. It's also hard as hell to spell. <laughs> My notes <laughs> were full of red lines. <laughs> like crustaceous, no. Cretaceous, no. <laughs> How many R's? Yeah, it's uh it this is um this is the time where when you were a kid and you imagined dinosaurs and all the toys you played with you know, and all the shows you watched, they were all speaking of this sort of late Cretaceous period of, of like 70, 75 to 66 million years ago. That sort of really sweet window of really awesome dinosaur activity going on all over the place. Because like we talked about before, um, Triassic, it's singular landmass. You got Pangaea. So there's a lot of... Uh, evolutionary bottlenecks when you have everything located in one continental landmass. You don't have a lot of seasonal change. There's not a lot of uh, coastal areas to have variations happen and for life to succeed. You got a lot of arid, deserty, dry mass in the middle where nothing can live. Um, so as the continent starts to break up and you get Laurasia and Guandana split up north and south um, during the Triassic, uh, you get a lot more opportunities for variations and adaptations to occur. Um, and then the Cretaceous is really the beginning of what the world being what it is that we know, the way that it looks now. When you look at the way that the world is and the way that the continents are laid out now, that is very close to how the Cretaceous ended. Um we have the full separation of North America from Europe. We have the full separation of South America from Africa. India at the time is kind of an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's not fully smashed up against Asia yet. Um, Madagascar is an island now. Australia is an island now. New Zealand is on its way to becoming an island. Um, uh, Antarctica is becoming its own landmass at the pole. There, there's a whole lot of separation and like we know from Origin of the Species, when you start to get um, things in more isolated environments, there's a whole lot more opportunities and niches for things to advance and develop and evolve in those specific different regions of the world. And you get a lot of like convergent evolution where like, a uh, thing will evolve on one side of the planet that is very similar to a thing that evolves on the other side of the planet, even though they don't have any access to each other or are necessarily related types of dinosaurs, but they'll be very similar looking and very similar behaviors, very similar body type, even though they're not actually related to each other. Um, so it's really just the story like we talked about when we were talking about mammal evolution early on in the podcast, uh, and we talked about the thylacines and the marsupials and everything. We're, we start to actually see that type of stuff happen in dinosaurs at this time. Yeah. The, the thing that is weird too, I was trying to look up really what marks the beginning of the Cretaceous 
like what was the end of the Jurassic period. Mm -hmm. And it really is just this separation of landmass and I guess almost like a sparking of this diverse diversification based off of the ecology and everything that was going on. So it's kind of, um, you know, you start to get instead of dry middle part and then a lot of, you know, swampy land around kind of coasts and stuff, you start to get that, those various like lakes and uh, riverways and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's pretty cool to, again, actually see the story come to life when you start viewing it from the evolution framework. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, of course, me, um, I, I found it interesting that this is where flowering plants really yes. kicked off. And that's um, a big deal for the survival of the dinosaurs that are living at the time. Yeah, the the flowering plants, I mean, before this you had like they were essentially like ferns or kind of kind of like palm tree looking things. Um I think those are extinct, right? Like the cycads. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but it's pretty similar if you see in like a short stubby palm tree. And the the thing with flowering plants that was unique, I suppose, is as you mentioned, I think it was last week that like in, insects had started to develop. They originally thought that um, flowering plants and insects evolved uh, at the exact same time mm-hmm. and we're bouncing off of each other but flowering plants came after insects were fairly evolved yeah because uh, remember we had the, we had the pre-triassic giant insects that mm-hmm. were like the size of you know a train car <laughs> yeah <stuff> like that <laughs> but it's it's one of those situations too where the the evolution of flowering plants like it it the oldest fossil is like 122 million years old of a flowering plant. And it doesn't really look like much of a flower, um, much like a blue bonnet. And it started to really just explode uh, because of the diverse uh, insects. Mm-hmm. So the there's so much competition for insect attention that it really drove all of these factors to start to evolve different things and when you say drive of course as i like to point out it's not like there was any decision made but just everybody's seen flowers how you can have flowers bloom right next to each other in a field but just based off of say the acidity in the soil right underneath them it could be pink or purple Mm -hmm. and so you can have evolution of things like that happen you know instantaneously that's like a trait not necessarily a new species but you can see how over time if the purple was selected then the pink is probably not going to survive much longer for certain insects Mm -hmm. Uh, but then you also get insects evolving at the same time who instead of trying to constantly compete for the purple flower uh, they're going to start to prefer the pink flower so it's kind of um it's cool to just see all of these things evolve and the flowering plants being able to produce fruit provided so much more like of a food source for those herbivorous animals, yeah, uh, including mammals and stuff. And once you get like pollinators, then 
the diversity of the plants themselves is going to go up at an exponential rate because yeah. you're going to have mixing, you're going to have mixed sexes of plants getting together, you're going to have hybridization, a lot more happening. Um, so you and the ability to spread their genetic information across long distances becomes much more easy, easily done mm -hmm. when you have pollination. Yeah. And I always, I mean, I think this was from the book, uh, river of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Was that the one where he was talking about the magnolia yeah. tree? Yeah. Uh, which I had never known, but you know, magnolia tree, uh, has a flower on it, but was, evolved enough before like bees and stuff were pollinating it so if you look at a magnolia uh, its pollinator is beetles mm -hmm. which you know it's crazy to way more ancient ancestor here. than bee <laughs> <laughs> it's it's cool just you know you have all of these things it's it's one of those times where you can actually you can look at something and imagine it you know a mm -hmm. hundred million years ago which is you can't really do too often even looking at fossils it looks so you know it looks dead and old and everything but if you look at a magnolia tree you can imagine this is what it looked like you know in a field now the cool thing about the fossils from this area this era this period the cretaceous period especially the closer and closer you get to the KT boundary when the asteroid impact hits 66 million years ago. Um, the fossils that are preserved from this time period are ha a lot of them have more robust detail to them than fossils from the previous periods we've talked about. Um, even like you have certain fossils that are not just the bones are fossilized, but they have a there's been through like mummification processes and you actually have fossilized skin and fossilized feathers and fossilized parts of their organs and fossilized the contents of what was in the dinosaur's stomach when it died uh, there's there's a whole lot more information because these fossils are a lot more recent in the fossil record too you know 66 million years is a lot <laughs> is a lot shorter time than 220 million years. So <laughs> yeah. all, that's the other thing to always keep in mind when we're talking about dinosaurs. It's like, this is a very long period of time, and the time at which we're talking about dinosaurs living was a much longer, vast period of time than even the time that's passed since they've gone extinct 66 million years ago. So they dominated for a long time. They were all over the place for a long period of time. But when we get to the fossils that are closer to this Cretaceous layer and inside of these layers, these more these younger dinosaurs, um, those fossils that are found are do have a lot more detail to them. And then that's also where we get a lot of the fossils of uh, the dinosaur footprints, and we can and they can see like where uh, certain like pachycephalosaurs or certain duck-billed dinosaurs they would walk on four legs in herded groups, but then if they were like threatened or needed to get out of there, they'd stand up on their hind legs and run. <laughs> and so you can, they can see, wow, these things weren't just four, four legs or two legs. There's a lot of hybridization even within these dinosaurs, within the way that they 
behaved in their certain environment when they were, you know, existing with their family members and stuff. Yeah. How do you get into studying fossilized footprints, too? Because I was watching like a video on this one area. I think it's in Australia where they have a bunch of different dinosaur tracks. And so they're trying to piece together what the story is but they don't know, did all of these animals walk through at a different time? Mm-hmm. Or was this like a predator showed up and so they all stampeded away at the same time or like what? But Were they all running from a flash flood? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> trying to outrun or trying to outrun a uh, a huge wildfire. <clears throat> yeah. There, I mean, it's... There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of speculation, but there is a lot of like behavioral at least some behavioral clues that you can get where at least you can say, oh, wow, these are all footprints of the same dinosaur. So now we have good evidence that these dinosaurs did move in herds. It wasn't just like uh, one or two in pairs or whatever. They they were herds like wildebeests or bison or, you know, like a lot of the grazing uh, creatures that we have now. They operated in very similar fashion. Um, yeah, it's yeah. it gets into studying the behavior of them, which is kind of cool. And I found that pretty interesting. Like the uh, Arctic Circle um, sort of dinosaurs, mm-hmm. like that stuff was very cool. I don't, I swear, I've never seen a photo of like that. Uh, not T Rex, but the what are they called? Like Tyrannosaurids or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like the the cousin of a T Rex that lived in like northern alaska and it's covered in like i mean obviously they're speculating but white feathers and i mean looks really (laughs) cool (laughs) um and the that part of alaska was on the 85th latitude 85th degree latitude so it's so far north that it's got four month long winters um so they're able to like understand through them and Another type of dinosaur that was the Truodon, like studying their bone formation, uh, what their diet is. So you can piece together like their behavior is very similar to the type of behavior of like, uh, I think is it, it's either moose or caribou or something that during the winter, their diet consists of only lichen uh. because everything else doesn't have any photosynthesis going on yeah, so it's got eating no bark nutrition and eating bark and shit yeah <clears throat> so it's cool to start to add the behavior of these animals in did you ever go to glen rose glen rose park in texas it's no. just outside of stephenville um and not too far from you know waco if you just go west a little bit but that's i went there as a kid um, when my dad was, we lived in Stephenville for a while when my dad was the pastor of Stephenville Bible Church. And the cool thing about that is Glen Rose is like a limestone, uh, like a little limestone canyon. And at the bottom, you can just go walk down and there's dinosaur footprints everywhere. And huh. so you can go like field trips, go with kids, but it's, you can go and camp there and stuff, but there's T-Rex prints, there's Triceratops prints, there's like pretty much all the dinosaurs that you find in the North American region. There's like evidence of them kind of walking through this pathway. It's really cool. 
the closest thing I have uh, seen like that is probably just like a, a fake one <laughs> at a museum. Yeah, where they um, did like it took an impression or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the, it was probably that. But my my dad uh, never believed dinosaurs existed. Some, somebody always... put on somebody put on some dinosaur shoes and went walking through the mud, and then they said, "This is from sixty million, sixty five million years ago, kid." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he was constantly telling me just dinosaurs like never just like existed, those Bigfoot so. guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except Bigfoot, he's he's jury's still out on that one. Yeah, yeah. The little side road, but it it is kind of weird that I grew up in a household that was very young Earth. Maybe the dinosaur bones were planted all over the world by, you know, Satan-led paleontologists trying to trick you into not believing in God anymore. But also, hey, you know, we hold a, we leave a candle open for uh, Bigfoot being real. We... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to close the door on Bigfoot not being real here. Listen, God loves him too. <laughs> you never know. You never know. I mean, th- those woods in British Columbia are pretty dense. Are you ever going <laughs> to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then... oh, God. Did you die? Yeah. Coffee went down the wrong pipe. <clears throat> um, isn't Oklahoma like a huge Bigfoot place too? Yeah. Um, you know, like... There's there's parts of Oklahoma that's just total wilderness still. Um mm. so uh I'm sure you can freak yourself out pretty good just going camping and even if you go to some place that's like uh a lot of people go to like Turner Falls or something. There's some areas in those campgrounds where you can get where you don't see anybody all day long and you can be like by yourself a half mile radius all the way around. And I can see how you'd probably freak yourself out if you were sitting at a tent alone and you heard some branches breaking and you automatically think that's got to be Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, I uh, never camped, was never into it. I got scared out of it as a kid. Oh, My no. grandparents lived in Wimberley and had like some, like a little bit of land, which everybody does there. And I uh, was with my cousins one time. I think I was like maybe eight. And we just camped in the driveway. My grandfather was the type of person that he would sneak out in the middle of the night and hold the front of the tent closed and just shake it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I guess that would, that's, that's not a, that's a very grandpa move, but you know, I guess he doesn't realize that that couldn't be a long lasting traumatic experience for a child. <laughs> I'm not a fan of that kind of stuff. He was really big into scaring. He did teach me how to swim by just throwing me in the pool. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's sort of a, it's kind of a Darwin thing, right? You know, you're either going to learn how or we're going to get rid of you because you weren't, you weren't survive, you weren't going to survive anyway. <laughs> yeah. Let's just nip this in the bud right now. If you're going to be one of those weaklings, that's just sucking off of the teat of our family trying to survive. <laughs> it's a mystery why all three of his kids studied psychology in college. Ah, <laughs> uh, bring back that type of parenting. <clears throat> oh yeah. So, um, the, the big dinosaurs that, you know, are my favorites of the period, obviously T-Rex. You know, we talked about Allosaurus last week because he was like the king of the Jurassic period. And he, he predates uh, T-Rex. Uh, and 
you see some of the adaptations that would later come out in T-Rex, you know, millions of years later, um, start with Allosaurus. But Allosaurus had some specific uh, abilities that T-Rex doesn't have that T-Rex in the evolution traded off the abilities that Allosaurus had. So like Allosaurus, like we talked about, had long arms, long enough where it could reach its own prey, had four long claws. It was Those were actually usable. They could scratch stuff up. Um, had really good vision, but was smaller than, a, smaller than what the eventual T-Rex would be. Um, and the uh, the advantage that T-Rex has is that it evolved completely to maximize head size so that it could maximize its bite and jaw strength. And the, like we mentioned this at the very end of last, or uh, two episodes ago, but like the opportunity caught, the opportunity trade-off to get a giant head with huge jaw bones, those muscles that are in your jaw and go down your neck that are in humans, but were also in dinosaurs and in lo- and most animals, um, those connect to your shoulders and go down your arms. And there is, if you are going to sacrifice something in order to get a really big beefy neck to hold up the biggest head in in of all dinosaurs and hold up the strongest biting jaw of all dinosaur history you're going to have to get that muscle mass from somewhere and so the trade-off is you basically get rid of your shoulders and your arms and all of that and all of that muscle goes into your neck in order to hold up this enormous head so you can't have a T-Rex head and a T-Rex jaw bite and a T-Rex neck and then also have like badass arms. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't get to be that chimera. That that just doesn't get, that's not how evolution works. You don't get to just say I want all the all the good traits. Just put that all in one thing. There's always trade-offs. Yeah. The I was looking to like all of the uh theories on what they actually use their arms for is very interesting but yes. they've got like very little proof of any of or they have no proof of right, like right. some of the theories <laughs> um like because it, it's also interesting like the arms they're not they're no longer um imagined to just be like vestigial where they have no function like our appendix is a vestigial organ well it can kill you Okay, well, that's one good thing about it. <laughs> it it is it is now theorized though that they did use them for something, but like the the reason that I think people imagine it's so odd that they had small arms is because we use our arms. Yes, um, you know, being humans, it's like everything becomes well. We obviously have the best stuff, but we also don't have a a tail as long as like our body is to like balance us out right when we run and stuff yeah yeah we uh we have to use our you walking or anything your arms are doing a whole lot of work to just balance and keep your equilibrium while you do any kind of movement whether it's slowly walking down the sidewalk or dancing or if you want to run full speed 
Try running full speed with your arms tied behind your back and see what happens. <laughs> Didn't people try that at Area 51? Oh, I don't know. A couple years ago. <laughs> they tried to Naruto run at it. <laughs> it, it. I think you just fall on your face a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's... I think like some of the, I didn't even write this down. Um, and it's weird too, watching the PBS stuff. Cause the one, the guy from like the, those other biology videos that we'll check out. Oh, like uh, the, Hank green. Yeah. He yeah. Like does those too. So I'm he like, does oh. everything. He's like Moving a chemist, biologist, evolutionary guy. He's all over the place. Does it for kids, for adults. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, I wonder if he's got like any actual talks instead of his videos anyways um they were ex they're theorizing that like they can use it for actually like slashing at prey or holding on to it like gripping so that it can then bite with its jaw or holding like the male used it to hold in place during mating or like it's it's a whole bunch of different small things but they've just got no evidence. <laughs> right, right. Well, they only have uh, they only have uh, two fingers or two appendages for the hand. I think it's like either the index and the middle finger, or your in what would be your index and your thumb. Like you don't they so they've already evolved a way where we talked about Allosaurus and the pre precursor to the Ceratosaurus precursor to Allosaurus had five fingers with long claws on all of them. Then you had Allosaurus with four. But now you get to T-Rex, short fingers, you only keep two of them. The rest of them are just not there anymore. And it does have long claws. They're not, not that these aren't long, sharp claws on the hands of the T-Rex, but they are much smaller than the T-Rex teeth. <laughs> like, the teeth are still, like, everything went to make big teeth, big jaws, so I, I guess, like, you can see how maybe they would need to use those claws as, like, little stabbing mechanisms, like when you're trying to eat a corn cob and you got to stick those little things on the side to, like, hold it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> so may maybe that's what it was using its little two claws for, like, poke the poke its prey so it could hold it still for a second to really get that awesome bite, like like death blow bite to the back of the head or back of the neck because their bite strength was strong enough that it would crush the skull of anything that it bit. Like it would crush the bones. It wouldn't just be taking a chunk out like a shark takes a chunk out of something when it bites it. This is like the bite strength enough that it doesn't matter that you have a skeleton on the inside of your body. It's that's not the the teeth and the jaws don't really even notice the difference between a skeleton or no skeleton. It's going right through it. Yeah. You you got me off on a brain tangent though. Whatever happened to those corn cob holders? Like they were novelties in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I we had a in the uh silverware drawer at the house when I was a kid, there was at least two dozen of those things. Yeah, and they would always stab you too when yeah. you're trying to grab some. Yeah, yeah. Because they're just loose, they're just loose, kind of off to the side of the of the silverware tray. <laughs> Man, I'm imagining too, like in the future, they they discover some of those and are like, why'd they use like double pins on a pinboard? And why did they make it shaped like a piece of corn? Like, <laughs> like so you knew not don't don't use this on any other vegetable except corn. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I swear to God, if this touches some pumpkin. <laughs> hey, idiot, it's for corn. <laughs> Why didn't they come up with any other ones, though, for like... Man. All right. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> so, yeah. T-Rex is awesome. Um, and probably a lot faster than they even depict in like uh, Jurassic Park where, you know, T-Rex running after Dr. Malcolm is he's uh, lying on the back seat of the Jeep and they're driving away. Uh, and he's looking in the side view mirror and say, must go faster, must go faster. Uh, T-Rex is actually probably quick enough to pick to catch up to that car. Um, the old ideas like back when the movie was made were that uh, T-Rex probably wasn't that fast because, you know, they were thinking about the size and like, oh man, the weight on these bones would be too much if they move too quickly. The hips would deteriorate. But knowing what, knowing what we know now, uh, 30 years later, uh, there's a lot more information about how the body movement of the dinosaur worked, how much the tail mattered in the ability to move quickly by having a counterbalance of that giant tail behind you, they can really lean forward and get their head low. And when they can get their head low and really drive their momentum forward with those back legs and have their weight be perfectly balanced on their hips, there's they can move incredibly fast, even for the size that they are. You know, we're talking 30 miles an hour. Um, so they're the old ideas of T-Rex being kind of a slow ambush type of predator that would just wait for something to walk by it and use its big mouth to bite it in half. Uh, that's probably not accurate based upon the uh, newer evidence and the much more advanced things that they can do now with CT scanning to understand like how the mobility of all the joints worked and all that type of stuff. I hate getting off on tangents again, but have you played the game? There's like a Jurassic World evolution. The video game? Yeah. Uh, I played the old the old arcade game where you would get inside the car in the arcade and, you know, shoot at dinosaurs going by you, but I've never played like the console game. Oh, no, this is this is not even this is like a new one. Oh, okay, no. But it's I think you like play as a dinosaur. I was just wondering if they ah, that's incorporate cool. those things or if they keep the like uh movie physics or whatever. Yeah. Uh I don't know. I, I would think that they would probably make it, <laughs> they probably, if anything, would make them move like faster and more agile than they even really could. So it would be more of a fun gaming experience, I'd guess. But no, that's a good point. <clears throat> God, why does nobody want to be accurate? <laughs> it's, you know, accuracy, that's not very important in this day and age. <laughs> One thing I was wondering, so near the end of the Cretaceous, we start to see that the hadros hadros hadrosaurs 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 those are the duck-billed ones mm -hmm. right and the ceratopsians their diversity started to like trail off and they they had become so specific mm -hmm. like very specified um and were already uh i guess prone to extinction they were very vulnerable a lot of those groups were yeah i think there's a lot of there's so much stability in the cretaceous environmentally compared to mm -hmm. the previous two periods 
that you do get a lot of very specialized creatures. And so that's that's why you see so many variations of creatures, but it's also they get very specialized. So in the case of the duck-billed hadrosaurs, um, you know, they have very specialized teeth that are different than all of the other dinosaurs. They have, so it's like very specific to a specific type of diet, eating specific types of trees, <laughs> you know. And so yeah. if that one goes extinct, then that could potentially really mess up their habitat to... Uh, and and ruin that whole like branch of the of that dinosaur, um, and there is also like uh, the evolution with the ceratopsians is such that it, uh, this is where I feel like there's a lot of like kind of convergent evolution because the ceratopsians are all over the planet. And you get, it's not just the famous Triceratops that we all know, but very similar ones like up here in Asia and Mongolia and Australia and North America and South America, all very similar body type. But then it's just slight variations in the crest or how many horns they have on the crest or if the crest has like uh, gaps in the crest. Uh, or just slight variations on like the length of the tail or the the size of the front limbs but they're all very similar dinosaurs like if you saw them all you'd think it was all one one type of dinosaur um mm. and you know none of those make it after the after the impact of course because uh, none of those are the ones that are eventually related to to the birds now t-rex and the raptors and um some of those other theropods those do are the ones that t-rex is not a bird but the the bird the avian dinosaurs that were bird like at the time of the extinction were direct relatives of t-rex and the raptors okay. and those but there were no bird dinosaur even though you have the hadrosaurs that have the duck bill they are not related to birds like ducks at all. <laughs> they, yeah. It's just it, that was just like we dug up a skull in the in the 1870s and we looked like a duck, so we called it a duck bill. And it wasn't when they found the hadrosaur, they weren't like obviously this is a bird. That that's not why they called it a duck billed dinosaur. Yeah. Well, so my question, it's more kind of a thought experiment for yourself, but. Do you feel, uh, from knowing about dinosaurs for however many years, was the T-Rex, like, insanely specialized? I know I know it was a very specialized animal, but was there anywhere else for it to continue evolving to? Or was it at, like, the terminus of its, you know, like, could it have gotten a bigger head or something? Like, I don't know. It might have already done the full opportunity cost trade-off of getting yeah. the biggest possible head that it could maybe maybe the future would have been that it would have um maybe to compete uh, as other dinosaurs that were starting to come around right before the impact were much worlds were smaller and more agile it might have gone on that evolutionary tract to maybe get smaller again instead of you know continuing mm -hmm. to adapt to become the largest possible predator on the planet 
Um, or and maybe it would continue to evolve to the point where those arms just would have fallen off and you just wouldn't have needed them at all. Um, uh, who who knows? Uh, if if the like if the if the impact doesn't happen sixty six million years ago, like who really knows? It it might still be the same because like the distance, like we've talked about before, the distance from like Stegosaurus to T Rex is almost twice the time from the time T-Rex disappeared to us right now. So yeah, yeah. if you don't have the impact, maybe T-Rex in 66 million years looks pretty similar to T-Rex 66 million years ago, and you just have maybe some more diversification of different variations of him, you know, running around. Yeah. So Evolution you... takes a lot of time, man. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned like the avian dinosaurs and that was like one tangent that I really got off on was the evolution of flight. Yeah. Um, I found it pretty interesting because it's, they, they had theories and weren't quite sure how to figure them out for a long time. Um, you have like, obviously feathers existing. And essentially, what you would call wings, you know, they've mm-hmm. still got like claws at the end. Right. But the the two competing theories were uh, the tree down theory, as in flight evolved from these small reptiles having climbed up into trees and then gliding down to either get away from a predator or attack some prey or something. Mm-hmm. And then you have the ground up hypothesis that they were on the ground and used the wings to kind of run flap along the ground um, so they could go faster, they could go up uh, inclines kind of and stuff like that. You see turkeys and peacocks and stuff, those types of birds that aren't like big fly, always flying soaring birds, they do that. Even when we had chickens in my backyard as kids, like... Chickens, even if you clip their wings so they won't, you know, fly around, like uh, when they're running, like if they're being chased by the dog in the yard or whatever, they do that, like, give me just a little lift so I can, like, do a, like a kind of a skip and I can run a little faster if I'm giving myself a little lift with these, with these flaps. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing that I found, like, crazy, though, um, have you heard of the Dash robot? No. So there was this robot designed as an acronym DASH, meaning Dynamic Autonomous Sprawled Hexapod, uh, because it has to be a word in an acronym instead of making sense as a (laughs) Science. Science is awesome. (laughs) Love our acronyms. They, um, of course, developed for the military initially, um, because you can't have any science unless you're trying to kill somebody. Right. And uh, this team essentially was trying to figure out how to make small robots for the military, um, again, to kill people. And what they kept running into is these small robots, like, can't get over a pebble, you know? They they uh. can't go upstairs or even just a small incline. So they were trying to figure out how could we have an autonomous um, robot uh, and incorporate something so that it could go up inclines or, you know, do whatever. So they started um, developing these wing aspects to it. And they put 
they had different ways of doing it. It's like a it's a hexapod, so it's got six legs, and they cranked it up as as fast as it could go. So it's just like scurrying across the ground, and it's a uh, very unstable looking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it looks like those like you know toy teeth that just chatter. Oh yeah, across. yeah. Um, and they they affixed some inertial uh stabilizers so like if it had you know like the the arm bone of a wing but didn't use it as a wing or didn't have feathers coming off just to see if that helped it run faster then they put fixed wings then they put also flapping wings on it and once they started doing this thing they made like a mini olympics kind of event oh yeah where it would like clamber up an increased steep ramp um, it would glide or jump off of a platform and glide and see how fast it could run, all this kind of stuff. And they realized when they were doing this, hey, this could actually be uh, useful to society and started focusing on the aspects of it for the evolution of flight. Oh. And they found that the like a pair of flapping wings instead of fixed wings or just stabilizers helped with every single test. It made it go faster, like go up inclines. uh, It would scamper across the floor, but it increased the running speed by only 90%. And from theoretical analysis, you would need 400% increased speed Mm -hmm. to have a ground up flight takeoff. Yeah, to give yourself enough thrust in order to actually generate lift, like we talked about in the flight episode a few weeks ago. Right, exactly. Um, But in the gliding test, flapping wings, uh, even more so than just fixed wings, helped it sail farther from the base. And that sort of concluded that it must have been like a tree-down evolution of flight that it was not beneficial necessarily. I mean, sure, they run flap whenever chickens mm-hmm. are running across, but that's not the evolutionary advantage of wings. Um, obviously, chickens uh, can't climb up trees, but it's sort of that is like the way that flight evolved. Um, so it's kind of cool that it's, you know, you can, <laughs> by building a dumb robot, figure out like this question that people are like we got no idea how to figure this out yeah it, uh, yeah that is cool of the, the the working backwards method of figuring out sort of these evolutionary behaviors and mm-hmm. and in a way i guess it makes sense because if you just imagine like okay if you've got claws on your hands but you also have like wings your sort of proto wings connected off of those arms and one of the fingers that's extending and you have really strong legs and you've got big claws on your feet, then it's probably really easy to climb. Climbing down is probably tough because, you know, like a squirrel can climb face head down, like with his head pointed down the tree and climb down the trunk and stay affixed to the trunk with its claws. But I'm not sure if you're a dinosaur that has evolved to have a tail body balance that balances all your weight on your hip. If then climbing down, it would be like a good method or or modality of your body type. Like, could you easily scamper down a tree like a squirrel does if your body weight is centered on your hips? 
I don't know. You could climb a tree probably pretty easily. So maybe once you're up in the tree, it's like, uh, it's probably easier if I can just kind of jump off <laughs> and kind of <laughs> and kind of soften my landing by by putting my arms out than trying to scamper down the tree and going headfirst into the ground. Yeah, it's it's a cool little I don't know, way to imagine those things. I know everything to me is interesting. <laughs> um <laughs> But it's it certainly makes way more sense, like especially with the evolutionary pressures of this period of time. Like it, you could not imagine that they would um, necessarily evolutionarily have the time to figure out how to climb head down. Yeah, yeah, and you know you have like uh, a lot of interesting dinosaurs that have these bird-like characteristics that come from this late Cretaceous period. Like, uh, one of the ones that I remember was the Nomingia when I was looking it up. But that one's crazy because it's got, like, the proto-wings on its short arms in the front, like we talked about, where it's got claws, but then, like, two of its fingers are extended down, and they make sort of, like, the, the extended underside of the wing part. You know, kind of mm-hmm. like how a bat has its extended, like, pinky finger that extends way out, and that's the the extension of the wing. But they also had the a tail, but their tail was was shorter than like the most other sort of bipedal dinosaur tails. And on the end, it fanned out with a bunch of plumage like a uh, like a peacock. So there was like a big presentation of this big fan of peacock type of feathers that all came out of the tip of its tail. So, but because of the way that shape was, if it opens its wings and it lays its tail straight, the tail is like a tail flap. It's got the, when that thing is laid flat behind it, it's almost, it's wider than the width of its body that that sort of tail protrusion that would, you know, look like a peacock part. So perhaps that helps with the gliding and maybe some kind of control in the air as you jump off the tree and go down. And these, um, the other interesting things about the uh, uh, Nomingian um, dinosaurs was that they had almost like the beginnings of what would be kind of like a beak structure. And then their legs... um, they had where the very similar to like bird legs where the thigh portion past the knee down to like what would be the heel had uh, plumage and had, you know, uh, feathers that would stick off it. But then the extended foot part, you know, because they walk on their toes, but what would be the toe to the heel um, that was like scaly like a chicken's foot. So much like how modern birds now, if you see a bird like an owl or a chicken or whatever, their feet are all scaly. And then right at the heel uh, joint is where the undercoating of feathers starts to build up that covers the rest of their legs. Um, This was the way that this dinosaur was, too. So it's very uh, this is a very tiny dinosaur as well. It's, you know, the size of like a, a small dog or a little bit bigger than a house cat. So, um, it's, it's just cool to see that you have 
at the same time, you have T-Rex and these very sort of what we think of as like traditional looking dinosaurs. And then you have now in the fossil record, these things that look like birds. They're all pretty much, if you saw it, you would think it's a bird or it's a weird version of a flamingo or a weird version of an ostrich with a a mini ostrich with a long tail (laughs) type of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, And these are eventually like, these small little tiny dinosaurs are the ones that survive the... uh, the uh, late Cretaceous uh, impact and, you know, eventually become the birds. And you can certainly see how the birds were able to survive the extinction event because if there's extremely scarce food sources, uh, flying has a huge advantage. Yeah. Obviously it uses a ton of energy, but you're able to survey a much bigger area. Um, but they had, it's crazy too. Like there's, I didn't write the name down, but there's, well, there's this Confucius Ornus bird that was like crow sized. And then there's like another, well, I say bird, um, but you know, dinosaur. Birds are dinosaurs. It's not like birds used to be, they are dinosaurs. Yeah. There's like sparrow sized ones as well. So it's the size comparison at this point is crazy. Um, and I'm like trying to imagine, I kind of want to need to, this is another episode, the evolution of birds, but they still had like teeth at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Little yeah. teeth. And, I've we talked about it before. I, I meant to send you the video, but there is, uh, genetic markers where you can take chicken eggs and, uh, tweak the, turn certain genes on and off and make a chicken have teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I need to see that picture. Um, but you can kind of, I don't know, I'm imagining in my head, this is not actual science, but how they lost their teeth if they go through this huge extinction event and the only types of animals that are around or the only food sources for a while are either you know, bugs that live in trees or whatever. You can start to imagine, at least I can, there's no, the teeth are not necessary because you're not needing to rip meat apart or whatever. Right. You're needing to specialize for uh, getting, you know, worms out of some wood or something. Yeah. And then and if all the, and if all the plant life as well is not being able to have photosynthesis, like you're having to like dig down into dead and rotting pieces of wood in order to get to whatever limited nutrients are available. So having something like a beak or something hard on your face that you can break through uh, wood, bark, rock, other things to get to the little grubs and nutrients that are still alive so that you can survive is going to be much more important than your ability to hunt. I'm finding it pretty fascinating, too, that the survival of the extinction, it seems to have come down to, like, the dinosaur survival is based off of physical characteristics, and the mammal survival is based off of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the physical characteristic of being able to dig a burrow helps, but it is it is kind of cool like interesting to like see i don't know mammals 
like when we think of mammals, we think of how they act right, most right, of the right. time. When we think of birds, we think of what they eat, essentially. Yeah. And I, I'm going to take this as the opportunity to jump off into the space portion of the conversation. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, so if you think about it, if you have such a sort of, for lack of a better term, utopian world for dinosaurs during the Cretaceous period, where you have a supply chain set up of giant herbivores eating giant fauna that is in a very lush environment because it's hot. It's not too hot, but it's not very cold. You got a lot of photosynthesis, a high oxygen environment inside on the planet. Um, You have this supply chain of big thing eats plants, then meat-eating dinosaurs eat those dinosaurs. And as long as that chain is supporting itself, then you're going to multiply the populations of all the species continually. It's all just going to keep going and growing and growing and growing and growing. Now, what you've also done, though, is created a very specified body type for all of these creatures over uh, a 60 million year period where they have become adapted to only being able to handle living in this supply chain. Like, if anything disrupts one element of this supply chain, then that is going to have a cascading effect on every single thing that relies on it. And so all of the sort of forgotten leftover creatures that were just scavengers that weren't really part of the dinosaur supply chain, the little pro, the little mammals and the little bitty dinosaurs and the small little reptiles, the little fish in the ocean, um, those are the things that make it out of this extinction event. And you have like some allig- small alligators and crocodiles that eventually become the alligators and crocodiles that we know today because you have some certain pockets on the planet where they're able to maintain like a swampy type of environment even though the rest of the world is totally burning. Um, so to talk about the cataclysm that ends the dinosaurs except for the birds... This was a big point of contention even when I, even when we were kids, um, but now it's pretty much total settled science that we had a giant impactor that was at least uh, 10 kilometers in diameter that hit the planet in what is now the Yucatan Peninsula. The crater is there. Um, it was observed uh, back in the 80s by people who were trying to find oil in the Gulf of Mexico. So obviously, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a bunch of paleontologists looking for the crater. Like uh, it was these oil companies that were trying to find places to drill. And they were like, what is this huge thing under the ocean that we haven't seen before? <laughs> Which is kind of cool. And it's also cool enough to know like the instruments that they were using at the time were these like gravitational inferometers I think they're called but it like can tell based upon like slight variations in in gravity like the depressions at the bottom of the seafloor I I didn't I I was just I never heard of a a device like that but then I didn't have time to look it up because it's been a crazy week so that's just a little note I'll go (laughs) look it up at some point um but anyway so 
this rock hits the earth. It's a, we know that it's a carbonaceous asteroid, which means that it's a dark, full of carbon material asteroid. Um, the interesting thing about that is that that is one of the rarer types of asteroids in the solar system. Like we've talked about the asteroid belt. We've talked about asteroid mining before. And these, these ones that are giant carbonaceous asteroids are usually found in the outer part of the asteroid belt. And it was thought at least even until like this year that those very rarely, if ever had a trajectory or a path to make it into the inner solar system in order to even come close to impacting any of the inner planets. But there's been a lot of study done and there was a big uh, study released in August of this year that showed the that traced back the actual location of where this asteroid that hit the planet 66 million years ago came from. And the way they did it was with a lot of modeling, understanding where asteroids of that size actually populate the solar system, and then trying to figure out how something could get out of that area and get in to into the inner solar system and what they found was that there is this sort of resonance that happens in orbital geometry when different bodies are circling around the sun you have the giant mass of jupiter outside of the asteroid belt and these asteroids are rotating are orbiting the sun you know faster than jupiter's orbit but if they get up on like a uh, some sort of synchronization so like a three to one synchronization so like if the asteroid's going around the sun three times for every time Jupiter goes around once, there's a resonance that builds up. And eventually, whenever Jupiter and the asteroid align in orbit, Jupiter gives it enough of a push that that asteroid dives towards the sun. And what they found was that an asteroid of the size five kilometers or bigger dives towards the sun about once every 40 million years. Now, the, a one that's 10 kilometers would get to the sun um, and be a potential impactor for the Earth on, on the timescale of about once every 200 to 300 million years. So that kind of works out perfectly with the geological evidence for what we see, where we don't see like, giant 10 kilometer asteroids hitting the earth all the time but it's happened enough that it fits with this scale of when this sort of resonance would happen where jupiter would knock these things in towards the sun so, so help me real quick go for how it. does it how does it push the asteroid is it like the asteroid goes past it and then it's and then jupiter just still has enough pull on it that it it slows its orbit so Jupiter, outside of the orbit of the asteroid belt, the right. asteroids are orbiting the sun. As the asteroids orbit, they have a resonance where they kind of wobble in and out, closer to the sun, away from the sun, closer to the sun, away from the sun. It's kind of like, uh, you know, rippling in a pond or whatever. And are they being pulled away from the sun because of Jupiter? Yes. So you get okay. eventually then that that tug that back and forth tug on uh, on this sort of 
the scale at which you're trying to figure out when when does the tugging make it so that one of these things gets pulled out into the outer solar system? When is the tugging such that it means that one of these things gets pushed inward towards the sun? When how does that happen? And the frequent they figured out the frequency of this and the frequency lines up with the impacting of the earth of asteroids of this size. So So it's like the elliptical just keeps getting narrower and narrower. Right. So instead of just like diving, like taking a left turn and going towards the sun, it's just that its orbit would be so narrow it will. Right, right. It's falling, okay. it's spiraling in towards the sun now instead of staying in a stationary orbit with the rest. It's, I'm, yeah, gotcha. I, when I say it's getting pushed towards the earth or pushed towards the inside, I'm saying in that resonance ring, it is spiraling now inwards rather. I'm not saying that, uh, Jupiter shot a gun at it, and now it's going in a straight line <laughs> right towards the sun. Right, yeah. You sh- it's still maintaining an orbit. It's just now in a spiraling orbit, falling downward in into the gravity well. Gotcha. <clears throat> so, you know, one, these big impactors do happen. They're not... Comp- and these big impactors aren't just things of the solar system's past that are like oh, we got rid of all the big rocks from the formation of the solar system, so we don't got to worry about that stuff now anymore. They still all exist. They still all, like, things we should keep track of because, you know, as humans, we don't want uh, an asteroid to be the thing that takes us out. And, you know, we keep track of the ones that are close to Earth now, like the most famous one, Bennu. But Bennu is, like, uh, a tenth of the size of uh, the one that killed the dinosaurs. (laughs) So when you're when you're talking about like the power and impact of a 10 kilometer size carbonaceous asteroid, the like all the movies that we've seen of asteroid impacts give us all the wrong idea of how this would happen. (laughs) One, unless you happen to be looking up at the exact point in the sky where the asteroid broke through the atmosphere you would never see it coming. Like, there might have been one T-Rex that was just happened to, like, have his head angled in the right direction as he was standing uh, in in Texas and looking the right way to where this thing was going to impact. And he might have seen it, but still pretty doubt- doubtful. The speed at which this thing is coming, its this is not like Armageddon or something where it's, like, really slow and we got this slow-motion impact happening with the Earth. It tore through the atmosphere in less than two seconds. And I'm not talking about just like the the lower atmosphere, like going all the way out a hundred, you know, a thousand kilometers out past the troposphere. Like it tore through all of that in less than two seconds, hitting the ground. So there's not even like a, oh my God, what's that in the sky? You don't even have enough time to <laughs> to like point it out to your friend to be like, what's that? Um so there's no uh there's no oh my god moment the thing hits and in if the dinosaurs are in north america or around the yucatan peninsula area like the first thing they feel is in a matter of seconds they get hit with a tsunami of land a land tsunami not not water the earth the actual dry crust of the earth ripples like a tsunami wave so you're hit first like that with this, all the ground rips up from underneath you and slams into you. 
Then after that, there's a pressure wave that hits a giant heat and air that's being expelled from the point of impact. When the asteroid hits, as it punctures through, the asteroid itself becomes vaporized at the point of impact. It ejects material of the crust and of the vaporized asteroid 1,000 kilometers out into space. So way past where the sol- where the space station is now, way past where the Hubble s- telescope orbits, way past, like 1,000 kilometers into space. And that then starts to slowly spread like a blanket around the planet. Um, and then you have like the bigger pieces fall back to Earth as like fireballs. Um, but the sort of the real interesting thing that happens is it's so hot at the point of impact that the air all around where this is happening turns opaque. The state of the gas actually changes to plasma. The The heat on the planet is the same as if we had a second sun that was 20 times closer to the planet in addition to the sun. So... Or, or if you had a sun that was in the same location as the sun that was 20 times larger than the sun. <laughs> so so this, this obtrusive heat happens and it's so hot that the air turns into a plasma temporarily. It's opaque. So you, not even light will go through the heat because the air is so hot. Not even light will penetrate it. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy to just think about this. Well, the, I mean, even just like the energy, they, they aren't, I guess, exactly sure on the energy, but it's predicted to be between 21 to 921 billion Hiroshima bombs. Yeah. Like, (laughs) what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's enough so that the ejected material that blankets the earth and it's all of this dust from the crust, the vaporized material from the asteroid, a bunch of the, where it hits, it hits in like a not great area because it releases all of these, um, uh, sort of bad chemicals from the inside of the earth out into the atmosphere that contribute to bad things happening and acid rain and all of this other stuff. But that blanket that wraps around the earth lasts on the conservative estimate, one year to 10 years. So you're talking at, let's just say average, five years of no sun, five years of no photosynthesis, five years of global cooling. So you first you have this extreme hot event and you have this pressure wave that wraps all around the earth. Everything that's on the side of the planet that the thing hits um, in a in like a thousand kilometer radius of the impact, everything is vaporized instantaneously almost. Um, then outside of that, you have very bad impacts of heat, uh, fallout, everything that's happening to those dinosaurs, fires. They're not surviving much past a couple days beyond that radius. If you happen to be on the other side of the planet, like you're in Mongolia... Um, it would take, uh, I think, I think the time that I was reading about, uh, it took half an hour for the pressure wave to get from the impact zone all the way to the other side of the planet. 
So that's incredibly fast, you know, way faster than the speed of sound. So you're ripping through this pressure wave is ripping through the atmosphere faster than the speed of sound, increasing heat, causing this this catastrophic uh, ripping up of everything of all of the uh, oxygen and everything that's in the atmosphere for anything to live off of. So you'll probably, the dinosaurs on the other side of the planet probably noticed it and were like, oh, fuck. Then it got really dark. Uh, then it started getting cold. Uh, all of the plants that anything was eating off of died pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, first you had all of the large, the, the dinosaurs that didn't die immediately from the impact, you had the large dinosaurs die pretty quickly because they have to eat lots and lots of plants every day just to stay alive and if you just miss a few days of being able to maintain that metabolism it's you're not going to last long so those go then you know the carnivorous dinosaurs that were scavenging off of the last carcasses of the dinosaurs that died a few weeks after the event you know those carcasses eventually run out and the big ones die first because there's not enough meat for them to eat and then you've got the little ones, you know, scavenging off of those and then they die. So, you know, in this five year period of global cooling, because you don't have any sun or photosynthesis, this is where the only things that could have possibly survived were the small little things that were living either underground or had ways of getting to nutrients inside of things that were already dead or dying. And that's why... The 75% of living creatures that die in this event are all the largest creatures on the planet. And mm -hmm. the only ones that stay around are the very tiny, tiny things. And the plants, found... and like the plants that have the ability to have seeds that can get protected for long periods of time and have long germination cycles, those plants are the ones that start to come back after the global cooling wears off. Because you have this sort of combination event that's happening in India at the time of this field of volcanoes and for a long time people thought that that was a combination thing the volcanoes in india were this long-lasting thing that was going on for like five hundred thousand years and the impact happened during that thing during that time and so you already had like an extinction event starting from the volcanoes in india and then the impact happened and it sped it all up but now the understanding is that the volcanic activity in india was not causing any kind of extinction event. It was not even close to like the volcanoes we talked about at the end of the Triassic or the end of the Jurassic period. If anything, the impact event was so catastrophic and so uh, detrimental and caused so much cooling that the volcanoes going off probably as aided in the planet warming back up quicker than it would have otherwise and actually might have helped make it not as devastating of an extinction event as it might have been because the planet started kind of getting heated back up from those greenhouse gases emitted from the volcanoes in time to give it a little bit of insulation before all the cloud layers broke off and the sun was able to come back down. And you say those volcanoes weren't, weren't as much as like we mentioned, uh, you know, at the start of the Triassic period, but they were still covering half of the subcontinent of india right in right lava. <laughs> they're huge and they're going for like for like half a million years <laughs> yeah it's, it's amazing the the thing on plants too um because i was like how you know you think flowering plants are like fairly delicate mm -hmm. 
but they did survive because of that aspect that they could have seeds that could lay dormant for so long. Uh, but the other aspect of plants is there's like in North America some fossilized um, pond lilies, and because the fossils show that they were in bloom, we know that the asteroid hit probably in June, but it was sometime in the summer. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of cool. Um, but it's also interesting that the the impact and the extinction event, one, it wiped out half of plant life. So it's not like plants were just like, cool, nobody's eating us anymore. <laughs> um, but it didn't, as far as like some studies uh, are concerned, it did not disrupt the evolution of like flowering plants. Like it, it didn't change the course. They didn't, you know, change their adaptation stuff because they were able to have seeds that could stay dormant for so long. It was not like it was this huge disruptor. Um, but one thing that seems to have been the reason that this existed, uh, a lot of plants um, have this thing with their genome uh, where they're called polyploidy. And that means, you know, we each have like um, one pair of chromosomes, right? That mm -hmm. we get from each parent. Uh, a lot of a lot of things do this. Um, some things only have one set of chromosomes, like male bees. Uh, but if you have multiple sets of pairs, like you have four total sets of chromosomes, then you're polyploidy. Uh, some can have three sets, blah, blah, blah. But flowering plants are especially known for having this polyploidy aspect. And... It appears that right around like 65, 66 million years ago, there's like a boom in polyploidy of flowering oh. plants. And just having that extra genome around means you have extra genes to pull on if one of them is disrupted. Um, if you have like radiation or something uh, from toxin or, you know, you have toxins messing up your DNA. You have a whole other set. Um, so it's kind of uh, like strange to know that this weird aspect of just like doubling its chromosomes likely led to its evolutionary success. Just made it more um, robust, you know? <laughs> yeah, which is you wouldn't necessarily imagine having double the chromosomes is going to do that. But the other thing that I found strange, the mega tsunamis created by this impact, um, they're estimated that they were over 100 meters tall yeah. and would have reached all the way to what is now Texas and Florida, um, you know, at those heights. What's insane is if the asteroid had hit in the deep ocean, it would have created tsunamis that were 4.6 kilometers tall. <laughs> so nearly three miles of ocean. But Good thing it hit the shallow ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it had hit the deep ocean, the water would have absorbed the impact and it probably wouldn't have been like such a... Oh, yeah. Such an extinction event. But because it hit the shallow ocean and was able to dig into like the bedrock and everything uh, it really screwed over the dinosaurs. <clears throat> so the cool thing about this is that 
there is also the geology story of how this was discovered. And uh, you had uh, geologists that were finding this same uh, same thickness layer of iridium rich clay like all over the world at this specific 66 million year line whenever they were you know digging up geological deep time and looking for fossils and stuff and it wasn't like it was hyper localized to one spot it was everywhere all over the planet like there's not a spot on the planet that does not have this layer now when you get closer to Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula that layer does get thicker and then they find the crater there or the people looking for oil find a crater there and it the uh, these pieces of the puzzle start to come together because they're like oh wow we've also found that the layer of iridium rich clay is much thicker right around where this is which would make sense because the the vaporized material of the asteroid having the iridium in it would be thicker closer to the crater site even though it did get all the way up in the troposphere spread all the way around the planet and eventually fall and settle to the earth in about the same thickness all the way around the rest of the planet so there's one there's now nowhere on the planet that does not have this defining layer two no dinosaur bones exist above that layer. That layer, anywhere above that layer, you will not find a fossil, a fossilized dinosaur. No, none of none of them exist. Plus, not uh, of the other seventy-five percent of extinct creatures, you don't find their existence above that above that layer either. They're all gone. The Are, ones in the ocean, they're all gone. It's that layer is the defining line of the last existence of all of those creatures. Are we sure that it's not just like a layer of dandruff from the paleontologist that <laughs> laid all these bones down? Just where all the paleontologists got tired of digging. We dug down this far. Let's just call it call it good. I'm tired of placing right. hiding all these bones <laughs> to disprove Christianity. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. So, um just another like you these things are discovered you know, 50 years ago and no one knows what necessarily the piece of what puzzle they've discovered when they discover it but it's valuable information and so people have this valuable information and they share it with other people in their field and then people from cosmology come along and talk to people from geology and paleontology and say hey what if we uh what if we put some of the pieces of my puzzle in with the pieces of your puzzle and let's see what happens and it takes the, the the space nerds coming in to talk to the dinosaur nerds to actually solve this thing. It's not like, oh, there was some genius paleontologist that just put it all together in his head and he's the one who solved it. That's not the story of how this was figured out. It is This was a collective effort of a bunch of people from different disciplines knowing a very small piece of the story and then that all coming together to piece together what we now understand as the story of the KT boundary and the impactor 66 million years ago. It's a wild, wild uh, conclusion, I guess. It's very insane. Like the, <laughs> the entire span of dinosaurs is just full of strange stuff. And it was, I don't know, I feel like the Cretaceous was also 
having gone through these three periods the most violent time and it oh, <laughs> has yeah. like a very violent end oh yeah the uh you you go from the sort of uh swiss army knife type of dinosaurs in the jurassic where they're good at kind of they're kind of good at a little bit of everything they can kind of defend themselves against a little bit of everything uh, they might just eat a little bit different, but you know, the, some of them have these different characteristics and, uh, they are probably adaptable to a lot of different environments to Cretaceous where super specialized, super predators and, uh, and like there's fossilized record of the bite marks of T-Rex into the neck plates of triceratops and how crushing that wound is on that animal so we know exactly that behavior is going on there's there's fossilized evidence of actual fights over um prey between different types of predatory dinosaurs like there's a certain type of raptor that was not velociraptor because Velociraptor is the famous one because of Jurassic Park, but Velociraptors were actually the size of turkeys, and they're not the the raptors that uh, we think of when we see Jurassic Park. There were other types of raptors, uh, Aoraptors, and um, other raptors that were found in like the Dakotas and things that are more like the raptors you see in Jurassic Park that are kind of like human sized. But most raptors were like no more than three feet tall, smaller dinosaurs. However, there's still fossilized evidence of even those smaller raptors competing with T-Rex for the same prey. And there's fossilized evidence of like one giant duck-billed dinosaur that had an encounter with a T-Rex and an encounter with raptors and the bone and claw, the scarring inside of its bones have both the impacts from T-Rex and impacts from the small raptor claws and teeth. So either that was like T-Rex took something down and then some raptors came and tried to steal it from him or vice versa. And then they had a little, you know, face off, but there's obviously a lot of like violent, uh, behavior going on you know just like you would see if you're watching any national geographic special on the mammals that populate the sahara or or the uh serengeti or something like there's the it the circle of life demands a lot of things die <laughs> yeah it's wild do we know the um what how did the stegosaurus go extinct because that like we're closer to the T-Rex than the T-Rex is to the Stegosaurus, right. but so the Stegosaurus, I don't think makes it to the Cretaceous period. Right. And we know that there isn't a, a small extinction event. Well, not small. It's still whatever half of the species on the planet die at the end of the, at the end of the Jurassic period, uh, because of volcanic activity and because of, uh, the stuff released into the atmosphere as part of the continents breaking up and the mm. stuff getting released. So right. we don't, you know, uh, as the caveat is with all of these things, uh, paleontology likes to be accurate within like, it's cool if we, if they're paleontologists as accurate within like a few hundred thousand years. So, you know, there's, uh, there's probably, you know, short ice age periods or global cooling periods that last for a couple thousand years or whatever as a result of 
uh, different chemicals that are released into the atmosphere, um, whether that's and then acid rain and then other things. So large dinosaurs uh, or large early dinosaurs that maybe don't have the as robust of a metabolism or can't adapt as quickly, then they just might go out or they might uh, have been the the predators that evolved might have evolved faster than the stegosaurus and they actually got eaten to death you know they got taken yeah. out by the by the natural evolution of the predators getting so much more advanced than they were probably the uh invention of guns too yeah yeah they they weren't big 2a guys and that's what got them <laughs> the one last thing too on the extinction that i found you know interesting it gets so cold on earth for those years that the sun is blotted out but fungus great time yeah <laughs> we build our mycelial networks <laughs> yeah it, it it blossomed during this time everything's just dead and decaying <laughs> <laughs> well it's probably why you get and maybe that's where you get the thriving of like certain grubs and insects and stuff that eats off of all those funguses and then you have like the tiny mammals and the tiny birds and stuff that eat those insects and those are the things that are able to survive it <clears throat> but yeah so i think to terraform mars we just need to shoot our dead up there <laughs> there you go and um one one last note on the uh the the volcanoes going off for five hundred thousand years in india um if you if like your thought is oh well look you know we could, that can release greenhouse gases and that can actually be a good thing to help the planet uh, maybe maybe it's not so bad the global warming that we're doing I mean it's probably not going to kill all life on the planet um, the caveat to that is with how much those volcanoes are going off for five hundred thousand years and all of the stuff they were releasing into the atmosphere it still isn't close to what we as human beings are releasing into the atmosphere on a yearly basis like now we're releasing gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere through our industrialization which is more than those volcanoes would do and it's such a shock in such a short period of time to the environment that there is no time to spread out the effects and have uh a sort of natural adaptation to those releases by all of the living things on the planet. So it's going, it, this is much more of what we're going through now is much more of a shock treatment of quick, quick global climate change. And uh, that is more catastrophic because there is no time to adapt. Yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, <laughs> that was, that was the fifth extinction event and we're, uh, literally currently living through the sixth. Oh yeah. So yeah. I mean, we like, we should that that would be another good one. Do the modern extinction rate because if uh, if I don't know what it is, but it's something like in our lifetime we've already lost like thirty uh, percent of the species that were alive when we were born, or something like that. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't a species go extinct every like six seconds or something? Yeah, something like that. Now, maybe Fantastic. in a future episode, we'll we'll verify these numbers. But off the top of my head, I think that's close. It's in the ballpark. <laughs> yeah. And there's only like 6,000 mammal species, give or take. Yeah. Lots of insects, though. So 
maybe they'll just take over. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely, as I've said before, I don't subscribe to the Kurz Gazak uh, mentality of, well, life will still continue. Don't worry. I mean, it might not be human, but life will still continue. There'll be bugs. They will continue. They're going to love it. <laughs> All right, man. We wrapped up dinosaurs. Good job. Great job. Talk to you next week. All right. Later. Bye.